Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Fun Plus Podcast with myself, Jack Creswell. Today on the show, we have Stuart Austin. He's in the driver's seat of Will Mott Cattle Co. From past experiences in the NT and Canada, he looked to get started into running a holistic enterprise. He's got a thorough understanding of the business operations from setting five-year goals for the company and reporting the performances to investors. Stuart is an advocate for what the impact of working on your agribusiness opposed to working in your agribusiness can have on your core operations. Let's beef it up and get into it. G'day Stuart, welcome to the Farm Supplies Podcast. Excellent to have you on today. How's everything looking your way? Pretty good Jack, thank you for having me on. It's a real privilege. Uh, we're in pretty good shape up here in northern New South Wales. Getting a bit of rain at the moment or? Still fairly dry. Oh, we are just at the minute. Yeah, it's quite welcome. Um, spring is probably turning up a little bit later than we'd anticipated. Uh, it's good to see a bit of moisture about. Just get that little bit more to carry you through summer. Yeah, exactly, mate. We'll, you know, even just an average spring or close to average will keep us going. We're in pretty good shape after um, a tremendous start to the year and then pretty good winter rainfall, actually. Perfect. Well, before we get like down to business, can you just tell us about? your own story how what's your connection within agriculture and then livestock yep uh so i grew up down in um albury southern new south wales on a little hobby farm uh spent a fair bit of time on my grandfather's property in the upper murray and then headed north i spent about five years in the northern territory um worked my way up to running stock camps up there and then uh was going to go and fly helicopters, actually, like most young blokes do up there. Um, so I went to try and make some money and uh, ended up doing quite a bit of travelling, having a bit of fun. I spent a few years in Canada, 
Um, I started a recruitment business over there that had uh, young Aussie farmers going to work on farms in Canada and vice versa. Um, and then I came home in 2010 when that was starting to get pretty busy and kept that going, ended up back in Northern Australia and uh, went to Marcus Oldham for a year actually in 2012 and did an agribusiness degree. Um, and then I was back up north and in 2016, we were looking for an opportunity sort of beyond the NT, I suppose, and in uh, holistic management. Yep. And that was how we landed at Wilmot. So we've been here for about four years. So how did how did Wilmot come about? You bought the property yourself? No, it's owned by an investor, uh, yep. a family from Sydney. Um, they bought it in 2008 and uh, then bought another property in 2010 at uh, Walker, a place called Woodburn. And then last year we bought um, a property at Canada. Um, Morocco, so it's now comprised of three properties, uh, primarily a grass-fed beef business, trading cattle, um, turn over a lot of cattle into the feedlot, but we also grass finish a lot of cattle, or are starting to again, uh, as well as a breeding herd of um, that'll that'll be close to a thousand cows um, over the next few years. Yeah, right. So that's a thousand uh, cows spread across the properties. Uh, mostly Woodburn. It's our. It's kind of our breeding hub. There's, We'll get back to about 800 females there next year and we'll have two or 300 females here at Wilmot. Yep. Um, and then most of our grass finishing happens at Wilmot or uh, Morocco and also the majority of our trade cattle goes through Wilmot and then um, most of Morocco's turnover is also trade cattle uh, and some at Woodburn. So a bit of a mix. Yeah, I think like the area that you're within, you'd have grass hopefully all year round. Yeah, we do. Uh, it was actually the reason, in some respect, it was how Morocco came about. Um, you know, we've looked at, we've, we've dabbled in our own branded beef programs over the last few years and varying degrees of success. But one of the big things that we need is consistency of supply. Um, and we're reasonably confident finishing cattle here at Wilmot sort of for four to possibly six months of the year. But um, the other half of the year, there was you know a fair supply gap there, so we wanted to look. We were, you know we were looking for country in an uh, inverse production system. So most of our production here happens through summertime because we're a summer dominant rainfall climate here, um, and we needed needed somewhere that was mostly you know winter dominant climate, I suppose, or winter production climate, and that was how Morocco came about. And it's also got. Um, about 400 acres of set of pivot irrigation there so that if we are in a grass-fed beef program, supply chain, you know, that we've got to be supplying on product to month in, month out. Um, we know we can turn the sprinklers on at Morocco through winter time and keep finishing cattle through late winter and spring. Yep. You're finishing them on the centre pivot rather than the feed? Sorry, sorry, Jack, I just missed you there. You're, you're finishing them on the centre pivot? Yeah, we will. We haven't had to just yet. Uh, you know, we've obviously we haven't had many cattle on at all up until the last, until sort of February this year. So, and we only bought in Morocco in May last year, uh, and it was devoid of any grass whatsoever um, when we bought it. So that's what we're sort of gearing our production system back towards now. We've planted perennial pasture under the pivots, um, and and in time they'll all be developed to a perennial pasture. Um, you know, a multi-species mix, I suppose. Uh, 
and that that's what we'll use it for you know and in a very dry year if all we were doing was was grass finishing cattle to, to keep a supply going through our own brand um if that's the way things pan out then that's what we use the pivots for yep um but you know that might be might be used for trade cattle grass-fed cattle whatever you know yeah yeah definitely taking a step back like into like marcus holder or even your experiences up north what did you learn there that helps you now with wilmot uh i've given a lot of credit to marcus and the and the agribusiness course i did down there it was probably one of two of the, of the best investments ever made in myself um the the best thing about marcus uh i had i'd actually started a business um or expanded on the recruitment business into sort of a backpacker training business trying to trying to give backpackers a short training course get them you know some skills and sort of make an assessment of their their um, ability and attitude and so forth and suitability for work on farms uh it didn't go so well the backpackers come here for the longest time with the most amount of money but they make their money last they don't like paying for things they don't need so um that I learned a lot of hard lessons, I suppose. I invested a fair bit in that uh, and it cost me a lot. Um, and it was a bit of a wake-up call to go and get some knowledge and, and, and um, information, you know, mostly about what I didn't know I didn't know. Um, so that was how, what I did when I went down there. Um, learned all about business, budgets, cash flows, P&Ls, balance sheets, um, you know, I couldn't do the job I do now without that knowledge. And it was very satisfying, actually, when I went down there. I was 28, I think, when I went down there. Um, so a fairly mature age. But I went there and learned exactly what I wanted to learn. Uh, so I give a lot of credit to Marcus for that. I was very grateful. Um, and I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, and it certainly didn't hurt that I was a little bit older when I went down there because I was able to just study. Marcus and I knew I, I, I knew I needed to, I needed that information, I suppose, where some of the guys that go down there are a bit too young and sort of don't realise um, what they need to know. Yeah, just there um, for the beers until they actually wake up and realise they should be listening <laughs> in class. Correct. So not all of them, but yep. yeah, it's certainly an element that go down there like that. Um, yeah, Marcus definitely has a good rap for setting people up um, and yep. like same people like as yourself going there as a mature age um, and just establishing the management side of the business in agribusiness. Yeah. Exactly right, and and short and sharp. You know, I was there for. I did. Uh, I only did one year because I was a bit older. I, I sort of was able to slip straight into the second year, um, and it was all. I think I worked out over the year. I was actually only there for six months. By the time we did our three month placement, a couple of tours overseas, um, but they were you know nine till three. It was good solid days learning, uh, as opposed to a four year uni degree where you know. As I can understand, you know, you might only do two hours of lectures a day at, at times. And that was the other thing about Marcus was it, it jammed it all into you in one year, in and out, done, and um, and learned what I wanted to learn. So, yes, completely yeah, different. I certainly, certainly recommend it. Yep. Condensing it all into the one year, perfect for what you've done. How? Yep, exactly right. How have you like lent that into making like prof- profitable and sustainable? I see like rotationally grazing, 100% grass fed. Yeah, mate. Um, so I suppose, as you said earlier, it really lends itself to giving you the, the knowledge you need as a business manager and recognising that farms are, uh, you know, a multi-million dollar business. Um, this, uh, I consider this to be a $40 million business and that's what, how I think of it every day, you know, as a general manager now. 
so, and the other part of that, I suppose, is being that we're owned by an investor. Um, there's a huge amount of financial reporting and accountability um, within the business. So we have a monthly finance report that comes out um, and I'm responsible for every aspect of that. So, um, you know, we we have our good years and our bad years, but by and large, they're mostly good years. Uh, and because, because of that financial reporting and accountability, uh, it keeps me really sharp on the numbers. You know, every month we're looking back at, at how we're going, budget to actuals, where are we at, you know, at just as opposed to, a, you know, perhaps a, a family business that, um, maybe maybe have, has less rigor around their financial reporting, uh, where you know there may be a few surprises, if, you know, at a quarterly or or half yearly review, where really month to month, by looking at it every month the way we are required to, there's no surprises. Yeah, I think that definitely pushes you into looking at the reporting a bit more rather than the three months yeah. setting up your budget statement. You're probably three clicks ahead of others in terms yeah. of knowing where you're at with your inputs and your outputs. Yeah, exactly. How yeah, and the other side of it, you know, business management would be um, at a strategic planning level. You know, we, uh, every couple of years, I've just done it again uh, last week, actually presenting a five-year strategic plan um, so that our, our board of trustees are sort of aware of where this business is heading, you know, what our growth plans are, um, and there's, you know, that's all quite integrated, you know, how the three properties work together, what our, our longer term goals are. Um, everyone has buy into those goals and that vision. So there's a, you know, we're, we've got a plan as to where we're heading. We're not just kind of day to day, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's really good that like your people work in their egg business and like forget about working on it, taking that strategic plan and looking for goals. Um, yeah, correct. So it's like, it's good that you can actually work on the company um, and take it to where it needs to be. How how are you setting up these goals? Or like, what are the goals? Are they for grass or are they for genetics? How are you working these? Um, there's, a, there's a bit of a mix in there. There's some operational goals that we set up on each farm with each team. Um, only small teams on each farm. There's a manager and a station hand on each farm. Uh, so they might set up some operational goals annually, um, which feed into their, you know, their sort of their performance goals, I suppose, their KPIs. Uh, and then, but I suppose they flow down from our long-term goals. So yes, our long-term goal one is um, fundamentally is three profitable farms year in year out. Um, the second is, in a, you know, at some stage we'd like to be finishing about a thousand head a year uh, as a goal, and uh, and the other is around the return on asset. So we've set ourselves a bit of a return on asset uh, benchmark that we'd like to be achieving uh, uh, as a rolling five-year number. Um, and, and that's driving us in some respects. Uh, and something else, I suppose, that's probably that is at the core of everything that we do that is is probably not so much on every uh, on most other businesses' radar is around carbon. And we are spending a lot of time on focusing on how we can monetize natural capital. So at this stage, that's all carbon. But in time, that may also be biodiversity. Um, you know, other ecosystem services that we're Generating, I suppose, or, or you know, if we talk about carbon specifically, we we are sequestering carbon here, and um, we've done quite a bit of um, work on our uh, carbon emissions as well as our sequestration, and we've been a, a net positive um, in terms of carbon sequestration for a few years now, and we'd and we'd like to look at, um, or we're working towards monetising that. So, 
so that's and that kind of drives a lot of what we do that in in terms of um fundamentally we're a brief production business but we're also looking at ways in which we can monetize that natural capital uh behind that or, or underneath that i suppose and, and create an additional revenue stream yeah well it can work directly with your enterprise kind of with livestock that's right yep yep How- and we're, we're doing it we're producing it you know like i say we're We've been watching our carbon for eight years now, and, and we're, you know, we know that we're uh, our baseline levels of our carbon percentage levels in the top 10, 10 centimetres are improving every year. Um, so the sooner we can start getting paid for that, the better. For farmers out there that aren't like measuring it, you say you've been measuring it for eight years. How are you measuring your carbon? Uh, we've got, we set up um, some soil test sites. That long ago, 2012, we started um, baseline soil testing here, and that so that that is just a standard soil test that we were doing for our own purposes to to determine our soil health and what inputs may or may not be required and what um, what minerals we need to be focusing on. And as part of that soil test, is a total carbon percentage um, measure in there as well. So we started tracking that, uh, and we do it at the same site at the same time every year. So May every year is our soil test month. We go to those sites, we take half a dozen samples at shovel depth along a transect, yep. mix it all up in a bucket and then send a sample away as a you know a, a 10 to 15 centimetre sample from those sites. So that's given us uh, a very basic baseline. We then, um, as part of the soil carbon project that's now registered with the ERF, um, they, the, our project developer Carbon Link have come and done a, a pre-sampling baseline across each farm. Um, so they took 20 samples across the farm, randomly allocated, um, and that's given us an even better idea. And now those guys are just starting to actually take one metre cores um, right across all three farms. So that's a much more expensive process, but that's to government regulation, I suppose. Yeah. So, you know, if someone wanted to go and do it, basically uh, it's on my soil test, carbon is on my soil test, but, but what I would urge people to, to do is um, be taking a sample at the same site, same time every year. Yes, yeah, just so you can like watch the difference over a few years. Yep, yep. Yep. Yeah, excellent. So like, for Wilmot, you've been introducing a bit of ag tech, but can you just speak to us about what ag tech you've introduced like to improve your livestock or your grass programs? Yep. Yeah, we are uh, like to see ourselves as fairly um, early adopters of new ag tech. Uh, I was actually doing up a little bit of a summary of it the other day. Um, so my grazing would be a, you know, the, the predominant uh, program that we use in all the grazing management. So that um, we have a livestock inventory record in there at a mob-based level, um, and all our graze planning is done in there. So we we are fairly intensively rotationally grazing. So, you know, most of our mobs are in a graze plan all the time, so we can see how long it's going to, you know, how many days feed they've got available in that particular cell or on that rotation, um, and whether we're understocked or overstocked. It's also got a forecasting tool that means that when we go to write our budget, uh, we can write, uh, put a, a grass forecast in there based on, you know, varying degrees of turnover. Um, that'll kind of tell us whether we're under or over our benchmark carrying capacity in six or 12 months' time. So we'll, use, we'll do a grass forecast before we even go into a financial forecast. Yep. Excuse me, and that's, that in, that's how that you know, informs that process. 
Um, in, a, in the yards, we use, we use SAFIN, so we use a Cool Collect and Cool Perform program in the office. Um, that's at an individual animal level, so every animal that comes through this farm, um, we collect just about every bit of data we can on it that relates to, that's critical to our, you know, monitoring their production. So we know where every animal's come from, how they performed on grass, uh, where they end up, how, you know, what grass margin we've made on them. And then we'll aggregate them up to a consignment level and say, okay, you know, our best cattle this year on a gross margin and an ADG basis came from XYZ. And then we'll look to go back there and, and buy those cattle again. Um, and that's also followed through, you know, the majority of our turnover is into the feedlot uh, and mostly into one feedlot in particular. And we get all their kill data back as well. So then we're able to look at how those animals have performed on grain and how they've marbled, which is what feedlots primarily paid on. Um, so then we can then we can really hone in on the animals that have done well well for us on grass, good grass margin, done well for them on grain, marvelled well, and they're the sort of animals we look for. Um, so that's Sapien. Uh, farm bots another. So all we just that all our tanks have got a tank monitor on them. Um, so we're getting it. You know that's that has saved us an enormous amount of money uh, through um, not losing production from water issues. So we know, you know, every time one of our tanks gets below 80%, uh, we know and we can check and see why that might be. Um, most of our systems are all on a, you know, an automated um, pressure switch system so that, or, so that they should be full all the time. Um, so that's, that's been a tremendous addition to the program. Uh, we've also got some Guana Rag telemetry um, soil probes and rain gauges at Morocco under the pivots to give us, you know, better information, make more more informed decisions around our irrigation as and when we need to irrigate based on our soil moisture at the time. Um, so that's very useful information. So there's quite a bit in there, Jack. And the biggest thing I ask, you know, whenever I'm looking at any of this is what value that um, that ag tech will add to our, to our operation and what decisions we'll make with it and what's the value of those decisions. Um, so in some respects, you know, some of this ag tech is extremely cheap based on the value of the decisions you make with it. Um, all the money it saves you. Yeah, definitely. I think like farms are looking for like the value they will receive from it before they purchase it. How yep. did you, what was your decision like getting the ag tech in prior to seeing the value for it? You may only see um, it afterwards. Yeah. So uh, my, for example, is a no brainer. Um, when we, uh, you know, because we're using that every day and, Every day we know exactly how many days feed available we've got, you know, we've got left for the cattle we've got on hand. And, you know, when that gets below a critical number, we say, okay, this cattle have got to go. What are they going to be? When are they going to go? Um, where are they going to go? So we're, we're making um, sale and purchase decisions probably six or eight weeks, you know, sometimes up to three months in advance of when they need to happen. Um, not, not getting to a point and going, oh, shit. Where are we going to go with that mob now? We're out, you know, we're, we're getting a bit short or, you know, making decisions on the spot. We're making those decisions well in advance, um, which means we can forward contract cattle uh, well in advance. And, the, you know, the feedlot we, that we work with, they'll go three to six months out with a forward contract. So I've been, I've easily put six figure uh, numbers around the value of the two decisions we've made uh, using my. Um, so that's a real no-brainer for us. Uh, Farmbot again, it was you know we actually had telemetry in the budget for probably three years um, before we made a decision on what telemetry to use. 
And in the end, you know, the farmbot was such a uh, was a decision we made because it was so simple. We literally bloody dropped the uh, probe in the top of the tank, screw it on the roof, and turn it on. Um, and I'd calculated probably three months. I think it was a couple of months after we got one, we got some. We started installing some of that, and uh, we had a water issue one late one afternoon with some sale cattle that were about to go the next day. Um, and I calculated in the additional shrink that we would have lost had we not known about that water issue until the next day. Um, it probably saved us about 14 and a half grand. And I think we yeah, spent right. three, and a, three and a half grand on the monitors. So it paid for itself overnight. Yeah, it's amazing um, something so simple can help you out yep. in terms yep. of, your, like, of your business moving forward, allowing you to make your bit better decisions as well. Yep, that's for sure. For like... For your business, what's the biggest challenges? You're probably going to say drought, but like, have you experienced? <laughs> uh, yeah, certainly in the last 12 months, mate, we, half this place was burnt uh, in September last year on top of the drought. Um, we basically sailed our entire breeding herd from Woodburn. Uh, we got back to the last 200 females that were cleaner heifers and some first calf heifers. Um, so yeah, that was extremely challenging. Uh, again, we just continued to make the decisions that we needed to make around destocking and looking after our ecology. Um, so I don't know, probably in terms of risk at the moment, uh, I am cautious about the market. Yep. Uh, I sort of believe what goes up must come down at some point. So we're, we're um, proceeding cautiously but optimistically. Um, but that will be a challenge to navigate that. I mean, we, uh, because of the decisions we made last year during the drought, um, when it rained, uh, we were able to get back into the market well before most others um, because we grew so much grass so quickly. <clears throat> um, so we absolutely killed the pig in the last sort of six months in terms of all the trades that we've done. We were buying a lot of cattle. I bought about Three and a half thousand head in six weeks, I think, from the bottom of the market. You know, the first cattle I bought were two dollars ninety, and when we stopped buying, I think we we're up to about four dollars thirty. So, in that first, you know, February March period, when we when we filled back up again, as because we grew, you know, when we grew all this feed. So that trade's been terrific. This trade now is the one that will be will be uh, challenging. We are going to, you know, we we will probably turn over slightly less cattle to make sure that we don't sell ourselves short of feed to make sure that we maximise the gross margin on these cattle that have cost us quite a bit of money uh, or have been bought on a, you know, on a fairly solid cents a kilo basis. Um, so, and we're pretty aware of how much that feeder price is, uh, um, you know, can drop before, you know, we're back to not making much money or a break-even scenario. So we're just trying to make sure that we set the business up here now um, to, to maximise the gross margin on this trade. And then when the market has softened, uh, we'll be patient in terms of our restocking decisions then. Um, and that's, you know, that's where we, we should make uh, plenty of money by leaving most of that profit in the bank and not needing to spend it all to replace the cattle we sold, if that makes sense. Yeah. Are you running like a self-replacement um, model for your uh, breeders? In our, yeah, in our breeding herd we are, yes. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we, we have bought some females. Um, I bought, uh, went to Karkor early in February and, and basically restocked our, um, our breeding herd there in, in a day. Um, it was early February. Uh, they called a wiener sale earlier than they ordinarily would have. I went down there and 
there was 8,000 head, a tremendous yard of cattle, um, and they were, you know, there was, there was enough quality there basically to um, combine up replacement females to, to restock it. Uh, our place at Walker for 800 bucks. And, you know, those heifers today are making um, 14 or 1500 bucks. So uh, we've been able to rebuild our breeding herd there with reasonable quality cattle um, quite affordably uh, because we um, we went early, I suppose, you know, and I was confident to do that um, because, you know, we were so we were comfortable with how much grass we had and, and how long that would last us. Um, and, and confident to make those decisions. Yeah, definitely. For like for your company, um, looking at regenerative ag, you're running a grass-fed 100%, but without the label of regen ag. Do you think like you're utilising regenerative agriculture? Yeah, we are for sure. And um, and I, I suppose I try to be quite cautious around not creating a divisive uh, conversation around region ag um, and not, you know, not creating enough in them. Um, we've had uh, a couple of field days here now and had hundreds of people turn up to talk to, to sort of hear about what we do here and, and what others who manage in this fashion do. Um, it's not rocket science and, and there's certainly, uh, you know, a lot of things that people are doing that are quite regenerative um, in their businesses. Um, one of the things I do talk about is um, principles, not practice. So there's, there's just some core principles, I suppose, that we try to stick to um, that maybe others don't. Uh, that, but, but there's a whole bunch of tools and practices that, that fall under those principles that vary across climates, across areas, across regions. Uh, but we certainly implement the same principles on the three farms that we have in three you know, varying climates uh, to the same effect. So, um, and, and I think uh, one of the things I suppose that I try to uh, espouse is around risk in, and, and the reduction in terms of our production risk in our business compared to others by um, not having the capital outlay on through the drought, it was on supplementary feed. So we were, our decision was to keep selling our cattle and put cash in the bank rather than buying feed that, you know, where there was essentially no end in sight. Yep. Um, and the other now, now that we're out of the drought is around inputs that, um, you know, the, the, the more we spend on inputs, the more we have to make to cover those inputs. So there's a heightened production risk there. Um, so we, you know, absolutely minimise the, the expense on inputs. And in fact, at Wilmot this year, we won't spend anything on inputs. Um, so there's a lot less pressure, you know, on us and on our managers, and, um, you know, which leads to a lot less stress on them to have to make back uh, uh, what, you know, that expenditure plus some to make the same return, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. And getting yourself like through the drought, as you said, getting cash in the bank, it's quite a like difficult decision for farmers to make to get rid of their prize breeders they've had for many years. How did you, did that, decision impact your business goals like take your journey for sure back? yeah definitely jack we and and i it's very easy for me to sit here and say that uh, we just did it i know for our manager at woodburn it was a much harder decision for him to make um he's been there 10 years and he's put a lot of takes a lot of pride in the female herd there uh, and rightly so um you know we've invested quite a lot in the genetics there um over the years 
So, yeah, that certainly, it was a very talented decision for him to have to make. Um, but, you know, we sat down. He kept making those decisions and, and selling, you know, 100 cows at a time, I suppose, to the point where we got down to the last 400 cows and then the last 200 cows. Uh, and we sort of, you know, and we, uh, but every, at every stage we said, okay, what is the best decision here? Do we look for adjustment? Do we buy feed? Do we sell these animals? You know, what can we do to, to think outside the square and what's the best decision for us to make? And we tried everything, you know, we did put cattle on adjustment, we did buy a small amount of feed. Um, we sold some cattle, we kept some cattle. In the end, we were able to, um, it was basically all we had left on hand. I think our entire inventory over three farms and 14,000 acres was about 300 head and 200 of those were um, were the last females from Woodburn. So we had, you know, a handful down at Morocco, a handful up here, uh, and but Woodburn was completely destocked. Um, so being able to, you know, to, to get through and being able to retain those last 200 was uh, some reward. And then, and then the, the turnaround when it rained and the financial reward for those decisions in terms of the last, you know, the amount of money we've made down there in the last six months um, has more than, uh, you know, it, it's really shown us that those decisions that we made paid off for us. Um, in that we've been able to retain some of those genetics and we absolutely, you know, we grew so much grass there in the first six weeks after it rained uh, and we, that we've made such profitable trades over the last six months um, that place has generated a lot of money and a lot of cash in a very short period of time. So, um, yes, very tough decisions to make, but, um, you know, we've talked about what we might do differently and there's probably not a great deal we would change about, about our strategy that we took. Yeah, it was, it's a decision not taken lightly at all by farmers, but like some farmers may just carry them through a little bit too long rather than getting rid of them. Um, yeah, and it, and it's, you know, I suppose I say uh, if you sell half, you, you double the amount of time, you know, amount of grass you've got left for the half you keep. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we weren't selling half at a time. We were, again, we were using myogrades and that was sort of, we were putting forecasts in there all the time on, Based on 50% rainfall, 30% rainfall, no rainfall, you know, what is, how soon do we need to unload or how long will we last with the feed we've got available and the animals got, we've got left. Um, so again, it was using some of those tools available to make decisions that were based on, on logic and, and uh, cash, I suppose, and as and, um, little as possible on emotion. Yeah, that's it. Not making the emotional decision, but making the, like, the business-minded one moving forward yeah yeah well Stuart it's been excellent having you on the podcast we'll start to wrap it up there um good to see like what you're doing across the board and like you're taking a step backwards and like working on the business moving forward not not many farmers have the opportunity to do that as like a sole farmer themselves just as a family uh, but it's important that farmers do look in on that that they do work on the business rather than just in it day in day out for sure, Jack. It's been a good good to chat, mate. And that would be my, you know, if there was one recommendation I could make, there would be um, the the second of the two best investments I've ever made uh, was the RCS Grazing for Profit School. Um, it, you know, for a long time it was thought of as a as a cell grazing school, and it's certainly not. It's it's a it's a school that uh, teaches you to focus on on inventories of grass money and livestock, and and all under underpinned by people. And very importantly, um, makes you realise the importance of making time to work on the business and, and getting out of working in the business 24-7 and 
So uh, I would really recommend that to, to anyone. Um, it's, a, it's a great school for, for any grazing management business or any farming business. Yeah, that's it. A good piece of farm advice there. For the podcast, who else would you like to hear on here and why? Oh, well, I would, in, on that note, I would have to recommend uh, someone who's been an incredible mentor to me and role model in, in um, Terry McCosker, who's the uh, founder and um, I can't remember what I think he's the chairman or something of uh, RCS nowadays. Yep. Um, he's an, an enormous, made enormous contribution to agriculture in Australia and, and um, thousands of grazing businesses in Australia. And I'd, I'd certainly recommend having a chat to him. Absolutely. It'd be good to hear his input. How, how can we contact you at Wilmot? Uh, well, we're just, uh, we, our website is wilmotcattleco.com.au, uh, presently being rebuilt. So if you're on there now, you'll only see two farms. Um, we do keep a fairly active Facebook page, Wilmot Cattle Co, uh, on Facebook. And, uh, and I'm also quite active on there, um, just under my name, Stuart Austin. Uh, that's basically where we communicate and, and share a lot about what we do here um, in an effort to, to help others fundamentally. That's perfect. Sounds like you're on a good job there, Stuart. Doing Thanks, really Jack. Well. Nice. We'll catch up further down the line. Have a... Thanks for listening to another Cracker episode with Stuart and myself. Thanks to Stuart for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. We could have talked for hours, but with Harvest just around the corner, I didn't want to chew your ears off. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the passionate and enthusiastic speakers that we've had on the show so far. So I hope you can take something away from this episode to help you improve your own operation. If you've got any questions, check out our new feature at farmsadvice.com.au along with the show notes to help you ask the questions and also answer the questions as an expert in the area. I recommend asking your questions on there to get it kick-started and it's just another way I'm supporting a transparent industry through sharing information to help the next generation. Follow us on our social media, Instagram, Twitter or wherever you find us, even on TikTok, for further motivation to help your ag business. We're on a roll for a thousand agricultural facts on TikTok, so if you're on there or your kids are on there, give us a follow. Tune in next week. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.